Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Edited and you don't have to worry about, you know, saying something that you didn't mean or, or whatever because it's all fixable. So uh, let's go ahead and get started. Okay, everybody ready? You're all muted, so I'm assuming you're all yes. ready. Yes. Yeah. Oh, there's a little hand raise thing. Okay. Yes, right. there is. On the computer, there actually is like a little hand raisey thing that you can use if you want to tell me that you need to say ah. something. Okay. Well, do you want to just call on people um, or? Yeah, I, I will. But I mean, if you feel like you need to, to jump in. Okay. Um, yeah, you can you can go ahead and unmute when I, I'll call upon you to talk. And then if it sounds weird, I'll just cut out the, I'll edit out the part where I'm calling to make it sound like you just jumped in. Okay. Um, okay. So let's see. Susan Cousell, Adam Gidwitz, Catherine Locke, you've all been on the Book of Life podcast before, so it's nice to have you back. And Rena Rossner, welcome. I'm glad to have you here as well. Um, I was pleased to see so many uh, people that I am a fan of on the staff of the Highlights Foundation workshop. Now, you will all be on the staff of this writing workshop at Highlights called Beyond the Holocaust and Holidays for authors who want to create Jewish fiction for kids. The authors will be your students. Um, I was intrigued by some of the questions that are going to be discussed uh, in the description of the workshop, and I was jealous that I couldn't be there. So I have called you all together today to do a sort of mini version of the workshop and just broadly discuss those questions. So the first question is based on the title of the workshop. The workshop is called Beyond the Holocaust and Holidays. So what kinds of stories are Jewish stories besides Holocaust and holiday stories? So let's start with Catherine. So I really like this topic because I've learned a lot about this this year. I think that Jewish stories beyond holidays and Holocaust are stories that reflect Jewish values um, and Jewish morals. Whether or not that includes religion is a different discussion, I think. Um, for me, a Jewish story uh, includes Jewish characters. I think that is important, but um, primarily reflects Jewish values. Okay, uh, let's get Rena's take. So I guess I have a little bit of, a, I mean, you know, not a different take, but in addition to, we'll say, um, because I, uh, I'm a literary agent that lives and works in, um, in Jerusalem, um, but also has many clients who are not Israeli, um, who are American. And obviously by my accent, you can tell I'm, I'm originally American. Um, I, there's a lot of very interesting things that are sort of happening, uh, I see, and the differences between sort of Israeli um, fiction 
um, and the spaces that Israeli authors work at. And, and part of that speaks to what we're talking about. And that's that um, a lot of Israeli authors tend to not necessarily write about the holidays because they're national holidays. They're a part of a, like daily life. They're just there. Um, and so it's not something that defines the, their Judaism. So they seek other things to write about. Um, one of the great examples um, is one of my authors set her story in Babylon with like these ancient demons from um, from the Talmud and from, you know, sort of different um, Midrashim Jewish myths and legends and that sort of thing. Um, and that kind of defined um, her Judaism. And there's a lot of questions as to like, well, is that Jewish? What is what what does it mean to be Jewish? And I think that there's so many different ways that you can sort of incorporate. Um, I heard about a great new book that's coming out next year um, called The Golem of Soul. Um, so like uh, the author is, is from South Korea and she's they bring earth from like um, South Korea to America and create a golem. Like those are the amazing ways that I want to see um, Judaism reflected in its multiplicity um, in the different cultures that it comes from and in so many different ways that go way beyond the holidays and you know the ways we normally see ourselves depicted in fiction. Okay, great. Adam, it's your turn. Um, well, I certainly, I certainly think that what um, both Rena and Katie said is absolutely right. And I, I think it's funny, as, as I've been thinking about this question and anticipating this workshop, so many creators are Jewish, um, be it in books or um, film and TV writing. Um, and yet uh, the incidence of seeing um, the varieties of Jewish life uh, depicted outside of Holocaust and holiday um, uh, books, movies, et cetera, um, is really low. And I think that that has a lot to do with how we've sort of always seen ourselves, um, uh, especially Jews in America kind of writ large, um, which is uh, I, I would characterize at least for myself and my perception of our self-perception, um, we have this kind of optimal marginality where we can be a part of the group. Um, we can pass for white. We can even pass for Christian or WASP if we need to sometimes. Um, but, you know, uh, we're also on the margin, and when we want to be outside, we can be outside. And so I think we've often found it easier to write stories about people who aren't obviously Jewish um, and just slide by that way. Um, and so I think that there's a real opportunity, especially with this wonderful um, own voices movement that's going on, um, for us to represent ourselves and our experiences, both modern and throughout history and throughout the world, um, more honestly and with more variety. Um, so be it, I mean, I love the idea of a golem from Seoul or, you know, um, a medieval Jew in, in France in the 12th century, um, uh, 13th century. I think that those are all really valuable. Um, things to explore. We don't kind of need to hide, um, you know, we don't need to pass anymore. Right, good. Thank you. And we'll talk about own voices some more later. All right, Susan, what do you have to add to this? Well, I certainly agree with what everyone else has been saying. Uh, so for me, it's, it's a very literal thing. Um, I'm a synagogue librarian. And if you look in my library, you'll see um, I have easily half, if not more, my picture books are holiday picture books. They have little holiday stickers on them and they are about, um, well, most of them are about Hanukkah, but then um, Passover and, and as each holiday goes, the quantity of them gets smaller. But um, 
And then if you look at my middle grade and young adult books, um, I have put um, Holocaust stickers on them because I think everyone sort of gives a heads up before you dive into the Holocaust. And half, three quarters of my middle grade and YA have Holocaust stickers on them. And so I am just, I'm looking to expand. I, I want my library to look different. I'm very happy to have um, holiday books. They're important. I think we do need Holocaust books, but I don't want it to be the only thing that we are. And um, uh, as having um, been on the Sydney Taylor uh, committee now for several years, I mean, that's what, I mean, it's not all, but it's a lot of what you end up seeing in the submission pile. And I would like that to grow and to continue to grow. Good. So I think um, this time I'm going to go around the circle in the other direction just to mix it up a little bit. Um, so, Susan, we're going to start with you this time and go the other way around. Um, okay. So related to that first question, what does Jewishness look like in children's fiction? And if a book is not about a Jewish topic in an obvious way, how can you signify that the characters are Jewish? Oh, this is this is funny. I just a uh, couple days ago, I was at um, the Jewish Book Council and we were having this exact same conversation in one of their seminars. So I feel like ah. I'm saying it again, but um, that's fine. So the, the, the question is, um, so what does it look like? And if it's not obvious, how do we know? Well, so like, how do you, if, if you don't put a kippah on their head, and it's not Hanukkah, you know, if there's nothing really obvious going on, how do you convey, without using stereotypes or something, how do you convey that it's a Jewish book? How do you represent the Jewishness? Well, this is, I mean, well, as you know, Heidi, this is a constant Sydney Taylor debate because, I mean, every book is it, does it have Jewish content? Does it not have Jewish content? And um, we look at every single book with this question in mind. Um, so how do you, I mean, so there are obviously the, the very clear books, but then I think it's more, um, it goes deeper than that and situations and values. And um, it's not all about the keepers on the head. And there are some books that actually have that. I mean, you'll see books that um, look very Jewish, but don't have that much Jewish content. So it's, it is a constant, uh, trying to, to figure out book by book by book. Um, is it when Jewish? You say, yeah, sorry. When you say that, um, when you give the example of books that look or feel very Jewish, but don't actually have a lot of solid Jewish content, can you think of an example of that? I mean, I can, but I don't want to call out the publishers. <laughs> <laughs> well, but then can you explain what you mean? Okay. Um, naming the specific book. Yeah. Um, right. So, so there are there are books that um, where the characters look very Jewish, but there's nothing in the book that is about any Jewish event. So it's just the kids being kids, but they happen to be wearing kippahs, or they happen um, to have tzitzit, or they ha do you know what I mean? So, but they don't. Um, so they look Jewish, or they might have a Jewish name. But that's where it ends. 
And so that's not enough. Not and, enough and, for Sidney Taylor. Well, not enough for Sidney Taylor. And and then there are other books that don't look so obviously Jewish, but do have Jewish values and do go much and are essentially Jewish books. We had a Sidney Taylor book a few years ago, Ketzel the Cat Who Composed, which on its surface, there's not so much Jewish content. But when you look at that book, it is absolutely Jewish um, in every way. Um, so I'm going to <laughs> sort of. I mean, it's not exactly an answerable question, but uh, I'm going to I'm going to move on um, okay. to let others have a chance to take a stab at it. And I also I'm going to just um, mention that my computer's doing this weird thing that it did on, in the past on one of these conference calls, where the screen just goes dark and it's very frightening. But it worked the other time. The, the recording was fine. Um, so I'm assuming that the recording is proceeding normally, even though I can't see it right now. So, um, so now I'm going to go around the circle backwards. So Adam, I'm going to ask you to uh, take a stab at talking about what Jewishness looks like when you're not being hit over the head with it. Well, I'm, I was actually thrilled by the possibility that before ask, being asked this unanswerable question, as you just admitted, um, your computer stopped recording. So hopefully that is actually <laughs> happening. Um, you know, uh, I think that that's the reason it's an impossible question is because Jewishness um, in a human being looks so different for each person. You know, when I think about my own work, my current series, The Unicorn Rescue Society, has a main character named Elliot Eisner. Um, is he Jewish? I mean, in my mind, he is. He lives with his mother and his grandmother. Is that like a typical Jewish home? Not really. Um, uh, I don't know a lot of like Jewish kids who live with just a mother and a grandmother, but it certainly exists. Um, in the Inquisitor's Tale, my you know previous book had a ton of Jewish content in it. But is Elliot Eisner less Jewish than um, Jacob from the you know Jewish village in medieval France? No, he's Jewish in a different way. Um, and so, I mean, is the Unicorn Rescue Society less Jewish than the Inquisitor's Tale? Well, they're both about tikkun olam. You know, they're both about protecting the natural world, protecting the animals of the world, being kind, um, having courage and curiosity, which are all Jewish traits. But, they're much, but it's much less explicitly Jewish. So I, I think um, I object to the premise slightly in that... Um, I wouldn't say to Elliot's face that he's less Jewish than Jacob, even if he's less observant than Jacob. Um, and so I'm not, you know, I think that Susan has to make that decision for the Sidney Taylor Award, absolutely. But otherwise, I think we're kind of off the hook. We don't have to make that decision. We just have to write honestly about um, various ways of living Jewish. Okay, good. Um, Rena, take a stab at it. So one of the things I like to talk about is kind of the multiplicity of Jewish experience and um, and the fact that we don't see, you know, this is why we're here, right? Because we don't see enough diversity among Jewish creators. Um, you know, you there, there are, like we said, so many Jewish writers who are Jewish but don't necessarily have Jewish characters in their books. Um, and that's one level, right? But then there's other levels of, you know, so many Jews that come from different cultures and so Judaism in Ethiopia, you know, doesn't look necessarily um, the same as Judaism from Morocco, as Judaism from, you know, America, as Judaism from a more European background. Um, and 
So I think that there's nuance that goes into the question with that because um, some of it for me is food a signifier, I think. Um, talking about like all those different cultures, you can have obviously challah, but you know, there's also other foods that come from other cultures that are very Jewish um, signifiers for those cultures. So that's one level. Um, one of my clients' books um, called Anya and the Dragon is coming out next year. And, you know, it's about a little girl sort of in, in ninth, 10th century um, Russia. And there aren't tremendous signifiers that makes her family Jewish, but challah, baking challah with her grandmother is one of them. And, and there's a scroll that they read from, which is sort of like the Torah, but it doesn't hit you over the head with its Judaism. Um, I have another, to jump in and just say that Anya and the Dragon is a wonderful book, and I'm very excited for it to come out. I hope everybody reads it. It's both Jewish and just excellent through and through. Sorry to interrupt, Reed. Thank you. <laughs> um, right. So that's an example of, you know, it's, it's a wonderful story about a girl trying to save her, to choose between saving her at home and her town or, or this dragon she discovers. And the Judaism is just sort of there. So, so I definitely think food is one of the signifiers. and. I know we said not to talk about holidays, but you know, another one of my authors, for example, um, Leah Shires, Your Voice is All I Hear. There's nothing terribly Jewish about anybody in, in the book, except that when they go shopping for presents around holiday time, they go Hanukkah shopping and not Christmas shopping. But that's another way that, you know, yeah, it's a holiday, but it's not, that's the, you know, it's maybe a page in the book. Um, and otherwise you wouldn't necessarily know that they're Jewish. So I think, you know, Judaism can operate on so many levels. Um, we talk about it as a religion, we talk about it as a culture, we talk about it as, as something that's in the blood, right? There's so many different ways to be Jewish and, and, and that's gonna look different for every creator. Um, okay, good, thank you. All right, Katie. So I struggle with this question of Jewish enough books. Um, because I struggle with feeling Jewish enough myself. So I think that books where they uh, become mirrors for kids, if a book is classified as not being Jewish enough, that there's a kid out there who is like that character and then doesn't feel Jewish enough. Um, and I think there's a difference between thinking of Jewish books for awards and thinking of Jewish books for collections and thinking of Jewish books as a whole. Like, I think those are all different layers of how we categorize Jewish books. Um, so I, I'm co-editing an anthology of Jewish short, short stories by Jewish YA writers, and it comes out next year. It's called It's a Whole Spiel. And when I went into it, I really thought that I felt Jewish enough to edit it. And the editing process was this massive, like, identity crisis for me, um, because I feel like my story is the least Jewish of all of them. And I felt like the least Jewish of the editors. Um, because I didn't understand concepts that were in some of the other uh, authors' uh, stories. And um, the central crisis in my book has nothing, or in my story, has nothing to do with being Jewish. Um, it is just the connection of how the two main characters know each other is through synagogue. Other than that, the crisis has absolutely nothing to do with being Jewish. So um, I think that for me, signifiers of a book being Jewish, as someone who didn't grow up particularly religious and whose parents like are no longer members of a congregation and 
and don't feel religious. And um, I'm a patrilineal Jew. For me, growing up, a, a kid with the last name Epstein in a book was Jewish, and I saw myself. It didn't matter if that was the only part of the book that was Jewish. That felt Jewish. Um, I don't have a particularly Jewish last name, and that was still enough for me. Um, the page about going shopping for Hanukkah, I think that that would have been like one of those, oh, they're like me moments when I was a reader. So when I think about books and whether or not they're Jewish, I try not to think about it as an author as much as as a reader. Would this book be Jewish enough for me as a reader? And I feel like I am pickier about that as an adult than I was as a kid. And maybe that's because we just have more books now. Um, but the bar is pretty low for me. If I feel like it's a positive portrayal of a Jewish person, the uh, the lack of a conflict or a plot or um, a setting that revolves around Judaism doesn't bother me. Okay, great. All interesting answers and interesting how different all your answers were. Um, so let's see, I'm going to start in the middle of the circle this time, and I'm going to go to Adam. And this is a new question. So here. what is, okay, what is the difference, or is there a difference between writing for Jewish children or about Jewish children? Write differently if you think that the audience is going to be a Jewish or non-Jewish reader. Do non-Jewish readers have different needs than Jewish readers? What do you think? Um, that's a tough one. I'm really sorry that you came to me first. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, you know, um, I don't write my books for just one person or two members, audience members. I think about I'm always picturing a class or even a gymnasium full of children who could potentially be reading my books when I'm writing them. And I'm thinking about keeping all of the kids entertained as I write the books. I often write my books um, out loud, talk to myself writing them, and try to picture um, the children's reaction to what I'm saying and what I'm writing. And so I love the moments when I, uh, a Jewish kid might really excited internally, the way that Katie was just describing as when she was little and hearing the name Epstein or shopping for Hanukkah. Um, but I also want to make sure that I'm not leaving the non-Jewish kids behind. Um, I want them to come too, and they may not have the same feelings at, at those specific moments. That's fine, but I don't want them to feel totally lost. Um, so, uh, no, I kind of write the same um, because I figure that, I, I assume that, you know, um, a Jew and a non-Jew, a boy and a girl, a child and adult, um, in every permutation of human beings you can imagine is, is reading the book at the same time, and I want you know them all to connect to the extent that they can. Okay, good. Thanks. Irina? Are you there? I'm just trying to unmute. Okay, sorry. I was just trying to unmute myself. Um, sorry about that. Um, I think that somebody recently called my my. So my debut novel came out um, September 25th. Um, it's called The Sisters of the Winter Wood, and someone recently called it unapologetically Jewish, which I thought was kind of a really great thing to say. Um, 
but you know, it sort of is because I went into that book on the one hand, wanting to write the fantasy novel that didn't exist for me as a teen, as an Orthodox teenager. Um, and wanting to have brave and fearsome and wonderful um, female main heroines that would exist for my daughter and for other girls like her. But I didn't want it to be published by a Jewish publishing house. I wanted it to you know, reach a wider audience. So, um, so the answer is sort of yes and no. I think that you know, um, I looked at Yiddish as a, a sort of magical language and said, like, if we can have Tolkien creating his own language, why can't Yiddish be its own sort of magical language? And why can't you know, Judaism and its culture. I was inspired by books like um, Bone Gap by Laura Ruby um, that use Polish and Naomi Novik's Uprooted that use Polish. And I was like, well, if they use Polish in their books, I can use the edition mine, you know, and it doesn't have to, yes, it's a very Jewish signifying, right? On the one hand, and yes, it will be there for teen girls like my daughter who can then read about brave Orthodox heroines in fiction. But at the same time, um, it's no different than reading Polish in a book. It's no different than you know, learning about a different culture and a fantasy novel set in a different place and time. Um, so it's, I, I mean, for me, I think I write for sort of both. All right, cool. Thank you. All right, uh, Katie, what do you think? Uh, I have to go with Adam and Rena here. I also want my books to be read by a wider, wider audience. So it's important that I, consider non-Jewish readers um, when I'm approaching the Judaism in my books. And um, for me, that's less difficult of a line to walk. Um, but I'm also, when I'm working on the anthology, there are things that we, that we by, by that I mean, the authors have said in stories in the anthology that are critical of the community. And I am very hyper aware of when I am having an intra-community discussion uh, and when I'm having an inter-community discussion. Um, I, I, you know, I'm very aware of how I talk about the Holocaust. Um, I know we're talking about books beyond the Holocaust, but both of my books touch the Holocaust and I'm very aware of how I talk about that um, and how much more the Jewish community knows about the Holocaust and how much more is built into like our psyches than to non-Jewish readers and how much more I have to explain. So sometimes like walking that line of how much I explain and how much I don't explain um, is the hardest part for me in terms of historical lessons. But I want my books to be read by non-Jews too and not I mean, not just because I want my books to be widely read, but because I hope that all of our books, um, since we're all authors here, uh, humanize Jewish people to non-Jewish readers who may not have regular interactions with us. I hope that from our books, non-Jewish readers understand that Jewish people are more than um, people who survived the Holocaust and people who did not survive the Holocaust. I hope that they are introduced to our myths and our stories and our magic uh, and our nonviolent history um, as much as they're exposed to the terrible things that have also happened. So for me, 
it's it's very important that I reach non-Jewish readers as well. I feel like that is part of my mission as an author. Um, it's just walking that line of explaining and not explaining. That's the hardest part. Good. Susan, your turn. Okay. Um, yeah, it's exactly what Katie said is the walking the line between explaining and unexplaining. Um, so I have my debut picture book coming out um, in 2020 and it's um, and it's been really fascinating to see the different reactions I get. Um, I've now showed it to to so many people at this point um, and the different reactions that, Jewish people uh, react and certain characters in the book and they know things and they know certain Jewish conventions and the people uh, that aren't Jewish um, are confused and what's happening here. And what, so it's been um, very interesting to see things that I have completely taken for granted that I didn't even realize I had to explain and uh, to watch um, to watch people be confused and I don't want kids to be confused. Um, but at the same time, I also don't want the Jewish kids to feel that they're being over explained or lectured to. So it, it's, it is a, it is a fine line. Good. So let's talk about the concept of own voices, hashtag own voices. Um, before we, delve into it. Does anybody want to take a stab at defining the concept of own voices? If so, you just unmute yourself and I can try. Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Um, so own voices is a concept that was first coined by Corinne Duvis, who is a YA author um, in the Netherlands. And the idea behind own voices originally was that it was a way of marking a story online um, through a hashtag, meaning that a main character or main part of the book shared something with the author. So a story about um, a young black kid growing up in the South would be an own voices book if it was written by a black author um, who grew up in the South. Uh, an own voices Jewish book would be a book with a Jewish main character, a Jewish concept or feel to it that was written by a Jewish author. Um, it, it's it's morphed and it's changed and there's a lot of controversy and debate around it. Um, but that was the original idea is that it was a way of marking that a story was written by somebody who had a personal experience with it um, and that uh, mm, that there was a, a level of authenticity to the story because the author shared a main trait, a main trait with the story. Good, that's a good definition. So I want to ask all of you um, how you feel about um, own voices. If you feel that it is important in Kidlit in general or in Jewish literature in particular, um, whether it's a positive thing, whether there's any downside to own voices authorship. So, uh, Katie, let's go with you to begin with. Sure. So I think that own voices plays 
has a, a really important role to play. And I think that particularly when it was first coined, uh, it was a really important way of signifying that a story um, had more validity to it, I think. I think that it has been used to police people. Um, I, I go back and forth on whether I feel like my story should be called Own Voices Stories. I am Jewish, like Ellie and the girl with the red balloon, but I'm not Romani. And one of the two, one of the three main characters in the girl with the red balloon is Romani. So I don't want people to get confused about that. And, but I do think that it's important. I think that the more widely I've read and the more that I've thought critically about what I'm reading, um, I'm uncomfortable with non-Jewish people writing Holocaust stories. And um, in general, the approach to Holocaust stories, I think that there's a pretty big difference when you um, look at a, a Holocaust story told by a non-Jewish person and a Holocaust story told by a Jewish person. And I, um, so that's one area where I think that own voices is really important. I think it's a good way to signify that some of us are Jewish who have names like Catherine Locke, which is not a particularly Jewish name. And uh, it helps me uh, get out from behind a name that doesn't sound particularly Jewish. Um, but I have mixed feelings on it. And I think that um, it can be used to uh, police people in ways that are very uncomfortable. Thank you. Um, Adam, you had brought up own voices earlier, so let's hear from you now. Yeah, I think um, I think own voices are so important. Um, and uh, I, I, I feel very strongly that it's um, something that should be uh, promoted and celebrated. Um, you know, any, sure, there are always problems with any movement or um, whatever. There's always, you can, uh, think about things in too black a white black and white a manner, right? Um, one could certainly make the argument that every book is an own voice book and no book is an own voice book, but then of course then that um, reduces the phrase to meaninglessness and, and it is actually a very meaningful phrase and a meaningful movement. Um, you know, my experience specifically with it um, has been particularly entwined with the Unicorn Rescue Society. Um, when I first started planning and writing the series, um, uh, we Need Diverse Books um, had burst onto the scene and was very influential, and I was being influenced by it. Um, but at least to my mind, and I don't keep up very well with the conversations and debates, not as well as I should in children's literature, um, I hadn't heard about Own Voices yet, just We Need Diverse Books. And so um, uh, Unicorn Rescue Society has two main characters, Elliot Eisner, who is Jewish, and Uchenna Devereaux, who is black and um, based on a former student of mine who I asked if I could base the book on her, and she read it, and she was a big fan of her character and her depiction. Um, and uh, that does in, you know, introduce a black female main character who I hope and, and believe a lot of black girls have identified with. In fact, I also know uh, there's a one particular group of white boys who also really identify with her. There's a group of kids out in rural New Jersey who play the Uchenna game um, apparently every day where they each have to take turns getting to be Uchenna and the rest have to be the other characters from the book, which makes me very happy. But um, as the books went by, the, the, ser the series, each book, they go to a different place. They learn about the culture, the mythology, and they help local people rescue a mythical creature. Um, and I realized in the middle of writing the second book um, that uh, 
I, in fact, I was at a writer's conference and own voices as an idea was introduced to me for the first time. Um, and I thought, wow, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's so much better than what I'm currently doing, um, that I shouldn't be writing these books where they go to different places and learn about the cultures, at least not alone. I should be writing them with people from those cultures. Um, how much richer will those books be? So um, uh, the third book in the Unicorn Rescue Society um, takes place on a Native American um, tribal lands um, and is co-written by Joseph Bruchak, a Native American author. Book four takes place in the border between Mexico and Texas in the border area, co-written by David Bowles, a Mexican-American author from that region. And the next two books, Emma Otegi and Hannah Khan, are writing with me. And in, in those cases, I hope that um, I'm my job is to keep the Unicorn Rescue Society sounding like the Unicorn Rescue Society, and our job together is to create a really rich depiction of that world and, and how these main characters interact with that world. I just think that it's, it's better both for the books. I think it's better for the readers because um, we are bringing more um, voices that they can identify with, that various readers can identify with. I think it, it, makes, it makes the experience a richer experience. That doesn't mean that every book has to be co-written with you know, eight authors to cover every character in your book. We're always imagining and putting ourselves in other people's voices and other people's bodies and other people's lives as authors. Um, but it does mean that if the primary theme, the primary experience of the book is uh, the experience of somebody who is not you, um, then asking yourself, um, could this book be better? And um, why am I the person to write it? Why do I get the royalties from telling the story? When Katie mentioned the Holocaust stories, I think about that all the time. Um, why, why is that person making money off of a story that isn't theirs? Very interesting. Can, can I jump in real quick? Yes. I think that, that what Adam just said is actually a really important part of Own Voices uh, when he said not their story to tell. I think a lot of writers um, get this twisted in their heads, like what they're allowed to tell and what they're allowed to write. But there's a difference between writing a character that isn't in your lane and telling a story that isn't in your lane. And I think Own Voices is about telling stories in your lane and then if it's outside your lane, you're signal boosting the stories inside that person's lane. Does that make sense? Um, actually, I'm a little confused. So signal sure. boosting. So, so own voices to me is a lot of, is, is writing stories inside your lane with characters inside your lane. And um, if you're a non-Jewish author, instead of writing, a book about the Holocaust, signal boosting, um, buying, promoting, sharing, encouraging your libraries to buy books about the Holocaust written by Jewish authors. That's a way to support own voices without taking space in an own voices story. So Adam said at the end of his, um, his statement that uh, why does this person collect royalties on a story that isn't theirs to tell? I'm paraphrasing there, but I think I, that was the gist of it. Correct me if I'm wrong, Adam. And I think I that's right, a really yeah. important. Yeah, that's a really important part of this is that um, own voices is celebrating not just characters inside a lane, but also 
stories that we should be able to get to tell first. Do you suggesting that um, for someone who it's not their own voice, rather than try to tell it, that they should support uh, the people who it is their own voice? Correct. Um, Rena, what do you want to add? I think that what you feel comfortable telling and what you don't feel comfortable telling is going to be different for every person a little bit. Um, for example, um, my grandmother is from Romania, but she used to light candles in a closet, which is a signifier that perhaps she was of Spanish or Portuguese origin. Um, and it's sort of what I'm working on for my next book. And um, I don't feel comfortable telling a story of um, someone who came from Spanish and Portuguese origin. We don't know where she came from. She doesn't know where she came from. Um, but because I didn't grow up with those languages and with that culture, right? So I might very well be able to claim that as own voices, but I don't, I'm choosing not to because I don't feel comfortable telling that story. I don't feel like it's my own. I feel like there are other people out there who did grow up with that heritage and culture, perhaps until the present day, you know, um, that know the language and know Ladino and know those sorts of things. And I'm not the person to tell that story and I'm not gonna do it, you know? Um, can I claim that it's my own? Sure. And, you know, in Sisters of the Winter Wood, for example, um, I did go back to like Eastern Europe and I did go back to my heritage and I looked, you know, I'm fourth generation American. My parents were born in America. My grandparents were born in America. My great grandparents were either born in America or came across the boat at Ellis Island when they were children. You know, so I never knew anybody in my family who had an accent, unlike my husband, whose grandparents are Holocaust survivors, you know, um, and and who were able to tell stories about their childhood in Hungary and Czechoslovakia. I never had that. And so um, does that mean I can only tell stories about growing up Jewish in America? You know, I, where do you draw the line? And and for me, I did say, OK, I want to look into my heritage. I want to I'm, I'm writing a, a fairy tale retelling of Christina Rossetti's Goblin Market, but I want to set it in Eastern Europe. I want to set it in a town that one of my family members came from. And when I read the different histories um, of my family and the genealogy, I found out that there was a town called Dubasari where the Jews of the town um, fought back. A pogrom was supposed to happen in the town and they fought back. And I said, that's my story. That's a story I want to tell. Did I grow up Russian or Ukrainian? No. You know, so I mean, some person might say that I might not have the right to tell that tale. Um, so I think that for every person, it's the, the um, you know, where you where you push the envelope is, is a little bit different. Um, and I think that you need to feel like you have the the ability, you know, to tell the story in the best way possible. Um, and and, I, you know, there's a question is being Jewish enough to tell any Jewish story. I don't I don't think the answer to that is right. Um, I've seen manuscripts that tell Ethiopian people's stories and I won't, I, I, I have one author who is Ethiopian and I representing her book. I won't take on a book written by a Jew who's telling an Ethiopian story because it's not their story to tell. So there's a, there's a lot of nuance to it. And, and I think part of it is personal comfort level. Okay, good. Thank you. So Susan, I'm going to ask you the same question and I want to add something to the question. Um, as you well know, the Sydney Taylor Book Awards, uh, which, as I, everybody here knows, is for Jewish children's and teen literature, uh, and some of you have won recognition from these awards, um, 
the Sidney Taylor Book Awards don't require that the author is Jewish in order to be a contender uh, or winner of the award. So how does the Own Voices conversation fit in with that? Uh, well, that's interesting, and because uh, I was actually about to say that. So thank you, Heidi, for saying it first. <laughs> um, you can go ahead and say it however however you like, and I can cut my question out however you like to do it. No, that's okay. Um, yeah, so we do we do accept books by non-Jewish authors, and um, we we have them win. Uh, we had one. Um, I know we had one win a few years ago, but I have to be honest, I don't investigate every book of, is this a Jewish author? Is that not a Jewish author? Because they're they're all eligible, right? Um, as long as they have Jewish content. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that sometimes you can tell. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's, um, it's a little more noticeable. But, um, I'm not answering this coherently at all, Heidi, but <laughs> I mean, I think that own voices, as everyone has said, is very powerful, very important, and um, I'm very glad it exists. I think I would say personally, I don't feel legitimate as an own voices. Like, I don't know that are we talking about Jews when we talk about own voices? I, I don't know. Is that what we're talking about? I, I'm not sure I feel included. And that's like horrible to say, and maybe we should cut this out. But I'm just being honest. Um, well, are you talking about in the own voices thing, conversation or in the We Need Diverse Books conversation when you say that you feel left yeah, out? I mean, I should probably not get into this thing. I feel like I'm going to get in all manner of hot soup. So, um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I'm not answering. Will this it very be well. matzo ball soup? I really it's okay. I hope that it will be. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but I don't know. I it's um yes. I mean, I th I think that sometimes you can tell the difference. Um, sometimes you can tell the difference a lot. Uh, we had a we had a book. Um, I think last year that you know, it talked about the um, main character going to synagogue on Sundays. And I thought that was kind of obvious. A kind of obvious giveaway. It just made an error. That's amazing. There, well, there were like many other errors in the book that seemed to suggest that perhaps it wasn't a Jewish author. Um, let, me, let me actually ask you a, sort of a different angle on this question, Susan. And if anybody else wants to chime in, then feel free. So um, so the Sydney Taylor Book Awards, as we've noted, does not require that the authors be Jewish. And we've had some excellent books that have won the award by non-Jewish authors. For instance, Marcus Susak, who won for The Book Thief or The Hired Girl by Laura Amy Schlitz. Um, or um, the uh, My Grandfather's Coat by Jim Ellsworth and um, McClintock. No, not Ellsworth. Wait, who is it? It is. Yes. It is Ellsworth by Jim Ellsworth and, and um, illustrated Barbara. by, I'm blanking, Barbara, Barbara McClintock. By Barbara McClintock. And <laughs> so we've had 
a number of non-Jewish people create excellent Jewish books. Um, so it's not their own voice, but they have done their homework. And so the books are authentic in their Jewishness. So what does that reality uh, mean in relationship to this whole own voices movement? It Does it take some of the steam out of the push for own voices or is it an exception that proves the rule or, or what do you think? Oh, you're going to get me in all kinds of trouble, Heidi. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I think that own voices are important and I think that you need to be authentic. Um, I think all those books you mentioned are also great, wonderful books. So it's Wait, hold on a second. Susan, are you moving something in front of your microphone? Because I'm hearing these funny noises okay, like you're shoving things around on the desk or something. I was messing with my computer. I'll stop. Um, okay, yeah. So say what I, you're saying again. Okay. So I think that own voices are very important. I think it's important to be authentic. And also all those books you mentioned are also great, wonderful books. Um, it, you know, it's very hard. Um, it, it is kind of a, a difficult uh, thing to navigate, isn't it? I was going to Can in. I just jump in? Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Adam. I just thought, oh, I'm sorry. Somebody else is jumping Adam, in too. Adam, go ahead. Um, yeah, just the, the, the matzo ball soup seems so warm and cozy, and I want to join Susan in it. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just saying that, you know, for example, I, I think there are um, two ways of uh, approaching uh, the question of own voices. One is from the author's perspective and one is from the reader's perspective. And then from the readers, it's also bifurcated between readers who are represented in that story and readers who are sort of looking at that story from the outside. So as an author, when I'm deciding what project to take on, now that I am aware of own voices and aware of the importance of it, um, and the fact that I wasn't before is, is, my, own, is my own ignorance, my own blindness, um, but now that I am aware of it, um, I choose very carefully um, who I want to write about and what stories I want to write, um, as, as I think all the authors on this podcast have been saying. Um, when I read a story, I am also very sensitive to, are you using Jewish and are you doing it well? And sometimes um, a Goy youth does it really, really well. Um, I think that most people felt like the depiction of the Jewish home in um, Hired Girl by Laura Amy Schlitz was wonderful. Was I mean, and I, you know, I've known Laura since I was a child. She taught at a school that is mostly Jewish. I don't know if that has anything to do with it. The school I went to, um, but you read that that um, story, that book. I did. I read that book, and I felt at home in a you know Jewish home in, the, in 1911 Baltimore. So, um, you know, as a Jewish reader reading a book about Jews by a non-Jew, I I feel fairly qualified to talk about whether it worked or not. Um, if I were uh, a non-Jew reading that book or if I were, you know, myself reading a book about a different culture, I wouldn't presume to know whether it did well or not. And as an author, I, um, I'm very careful. So those are sort of three different routes into the question of whether a book uh, can be a good book in or, or not within the own voices rubric. <coughs> Yeah, I wanted to jump in and say um, that that I recently I was speaking to um, a crowd of people and about my book and um, and and somebody said to me that one of the best parts um, that that she had saw in my book that she hadn't seen in other books that sort of set themselves in Eastern Europe 
um, whether they were written by Jews or non-Jews, um, was that I depicted life in the shtetl um, as the Jews and non-Jews lives being very much intermixed and intermingled. And that this person was a historian and they were saying that they very much appreciated that because most people think that a shtetl meant it was only Jews who lived in the shtetl. And that was never the case or almost never. Um, shtetls might be half Jewish or 30% Jewish or 60% Jewish or even 70% Jewish, but there were always Jews living alongside non-Jews and how much she appreciated that I'd done that in my novel. Now, I didn't know that I'd done that in my novel. I only know that I did a tremendous amount of research and used a tremendous amount of source material to try to recreate the shtetl of Dubasari that my family came from. So I think it is possible to do your research and do it well, whether you're Jewish or non-Jewish. Um, and sometimes you don't even know how well you researched your book. Um, but you know, at the same time, I, as a reader, I my ears are always attuned to mistakes. Um, for example, when they were doing my audiobook, I demanded that I be allowed to listen to it before they went on air with it because there was not going to be a Jewish word mispronounced on my watch. I was not going to let that happen. Um, and I went through 20 hours of my audiobook and made sure that everything was pronounced correctly because I couldn't let that happen in my book. You know, I had to make sure that my authenticity was on the page in the best way possible. And having said all of that, someone told me that all my Yiddish pronunciations were actually not Ukrainian and Moldavian, but were actually Romanian, which goes along with the fact that my grandmother's Romanian. So you can never get it perfect, even if you try. Um, I, that was what I wanted to jump in and say. <laughs> that's really funny because um, long after I last saw my book, a Yiddish word was changed to the German word. Um, and I found it when I got my finished copies and it was mm. very upsetting. Um, mm. No one else has noticed it, but I certainly did. Uh, but there's something about the own voices is that I also trust an own voices author a little more. I just um, read Spitting Silver in August and it was beautiful, but I have to admit, like when I picked it up and it starts with a Jewish money lender, I was holding my breath, but it was because I knew the author was Jewish that I kept reading, that I even picked it up to begin with, knowing that premise. Um, so there is an aspect to an own voices that um, builds a bridge and like allows me to have that trust that something like that is going to be handled well. And I, I think that shtetl uh, thing you're talking about, Rena, is really the fiddler on the roof effect. Yes, I agree. And that's what most people associate with a shtetl, right? But I was at this talk and people were saying, well, most shtetls were Jewish. Someone said that. And I was like, no, actually, they were mostly not all Jewish. Um, you know, and I, I don't know if that's a perception that comes from fiddler on the roof or if that's a perception that's been passed on through the generations. Um, one of the things, it's interesting, Catherine, that you mentioned um, Spinning Silver, because um, I was recently reading a review that sort of criticized that book because it, there was no Yiddish in it. And I was really upset by that because I was like, one of the things that, that fantasy enables you to do, and this is what I talk about when I talk about Jewish fantasy, is it enables you to imagine alternate pasts, presents, and futures. Um, 
science fiction and fantasy gives us another realm to work on. And if a Jewish author wants to imagine an Eastern Europe where there was no Yiddish, they have every right to do that, you know? And if an author wants to imagine a future where Yiddish is a language that we all speak, that's also, you know, we have a right to do that. And, um, and I think that, you know, so to a certain degree, do you have a right to imagine a shtetl that's only full of Jews? Sure, you know, um, but, but there's also the place of historical accuracy and it depends on what you're claiming your book is. Could I have done whatever I wanted in my fantasy novel? As you know, sure, I guess I could have, you know, but uh, to me, I tried to create the authenticity there. Um, but I think that, that that's what happens when you have an own voice as author. You're along for the ride and you're saying, I trust that what you're doing, right, whatever it might be, is a version of, of the truth you want to tell. I love that. I really love that. Okay, these are awesome answers. So um, let's go with another buzzword now. So we talked about hashtag own voices. Now I want to talk about intersectionality. So first, does anybody want to try to define it? Nobody else wants um, to. Heidi, that. unfortunately, I have yeah? to. Sorry, I have to get off the phone in a, in a couple of minutes. So I don't. I don't know if you need a. Is that okay? Do you need a sign off from me? Oh, okay. So Adam, if, let's go ahead and um, we'll skip over intersectionality for now, and um, let's do um, the tikkun olam segment to uh, to make sure that you get in on that. So did you yeah, see sorry. my email about that? I did. I did. So um, in terms of something that you would like in, to invite listeners to do to help heal the world, what would you say? I think, um, especially in the context of this Jewish podcast, um, I've been um, thinking a lot about my history and my history, my family's history in this country. Um, I, you know, there's a story, I think every family, every immigrant family has a story like this. My Papa Jake, the, my great-grandfather, was the first person on that side of the family to come to this country, and he was a pots and pans peddler, and we tell, we've always told a story about him, um, you know, uh, working his way up, selling pots and pans, and buying a hardware store, and then opening a second hardware store, and then giving his three sons enough money to buy a small hand cream company, which became a shampoo company, um, uh, and that sort of our... Our family was established in this country through the hard work of um, Papa Jake, all of which is true. Um, but I recently read his own account of that history, and what it leaves out um, is that he was his store, um, his hardware store, was selling money on credit to black sharecroppers, um, and that there was one plot of land where, um, through some legal wrangling that I don't quite understand. He came into possession of the plot of land, um, and he uh, evicted uh, 26 of the 30 families who lived on that land. He, he used the money he got from that land to buy some more land, and he became one of the largest land owners in his little corner of a county in Mississippi. We all have mythology that we tell about our families and also about ourselves. And I think often that mythology um, glazes over um, our role, our complicity, and how we profit from a system in this country that 
um, was designed to be racist, that was built explicitly by the founders um, to count black slaves as three-fifths of people, that was built before, long before that to um, eradicate, to murder Native Americans, and then to make them invisible, um, to ensure that every person of you know, darkish complexion that came to these shores worked for white people. Um, we live in a white supremacist country, and um, all of us who have passed for white can pass for white, even if we are Jewish, even if, you know, my, uh, my great-grandfather, Papa Jake, was, he was absolutely persecuted for being Jewish, um, and yet when he punched out his persecutor in small town in Mississippi where he lived, um, the persecutor's brothers refused to support bringing charges because he said he had it coming to you. Had my great-grandfather been black, uh, he would have been hanged for sure, um, extrajudiciously, uh, ju judiciary, however you say that word. He would have been lynched. So I, I have profited from a white supremacist system, and I still do. And so the way that I am working these days on tikkun olam, on making the world whole, um, is just by talking about it, is by trying to um, point out um, that I live and profit from a white supremacist and a patriarchal male-dominated system. Um, and I profit from it every single day. And um, I want to tear it down, and I want to help the people who have been working to tear it down a lot longer than I've even been aware of the problem. Um, and so I would ask the listeners to think about, um, even if it's hard for you to admit personal complicity, at least perhaps familial or systemic or societal complicity, um, and to think about the ways you can raise your voice, you can talk, and you can use honesty, um, and kindness to, to tear down uh, systems of racism, of white supremacy, and of patriarchy. That was amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thank you. Yes, thanks for the opportunity to yeah. say it. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, so I, I know that actually because there's so many people, it's taking – uh, you know, it's taking a big block of time to do this. So let's all go ahead and, and work on that part. And then anybody who wants to stick around, we can go back to the intersectionality part. Um, and before you leave, Adam, let's also do a, a closer where everybody everybody's voice is heard. So I'll, I'll go ahead and record that part where basically we all just thank each other now. And then I'll move that to the end when I edit. Um, so for this, everybody can chime in. You can just all unmute yourselves for this part. I'll just say as people are unmuting themselves, sorry to rearrange things for um, for my schedule. Sorry no, about that, everybody. Okay. Thank you for okay. accommodating. I actually warned you about how long or short it might take, so it's fine because I know it's already been an hour. Um, Susan, Adam, Catherine, Rena, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Heidi. This has been great. Hello. Adam, you there? Oh, no. <laughs> Oh, oh is he gone? So close. yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's sad. All right. Well, anyway, um, <laughs> I'm glad he got his full answer on the tikkun olam part because that was awesome. Um, would somebody else like to go ahead and uh, <clears throat> and talk about your thoughts on tikkun olam? Well, not follow that. <laughs> <laughs> that was basically the, the microphone drop moment. It, it really was. was. <laughs> well, I could put his last. Can we just say ditto? 
Um, I have something I would say. Um, I was in, uh, I was at a wedding the day after the, the, um, the shooting that happened in Pittsburgh. And um, I walked out of the wedding. First of all, during the wedding, we saw flashlights all around the sanctuary. Um, and it, we knew that there were police all around the, the synagogue. Um, you know, it was only natural. It was in a reform synagogue. It was a day after. Uh, and when I left the wedding, there were three police cars outside and I felt safe. And the next day I sort of went on Twitter and said, you know, like, it was really hard. I was at a wedding. There was not a dry eye in the house. Under the chuppah, the rabbi, who was um, a female Orthodox rabbi, a maharat, um, brought up, you know, the idea of that when we break the glass under the chuppah, we're going to also kind of think about, you know, the people who were murdered yesterday. And, you know, everybody was crying. And that I walked out of the synagogue and I, and I felt safe because there were police there. And then somebody on Twitter um, was sort of talking about how they were black and Jewish and how having police outside a synagogue does not make them feel safe. And I had to stop in my tracks for a minute and say, oh, wow, you know, and that's my privilege speaking. And that is me, you know, feeling that police can bring me safety. And on the one hand, I don't think that there's an answer to this yet because not having our synagogues protected isn't the answer either, right? Um, and we don't have an alternative security system right now in the United States or anywhere. Um, I mean, in Israel, maybe you'll have the army, but that's also got its own, you know, issues um, and um, <clears throat> and uh, groups that it could potentially, you know, exclude or not exclude. So it, it got me thinking that, you know, I think the most important thing that all of us can do um, in, you know, whether you have a place of worship or not, if it's not a place of worship, maybe it's your office, maybe it's um, you know, a school, maybe it's um, wherever it is that you encounter other people, is to try to be more inclusive and to try to reach out to somebody who doesn't look like you, to try to reach out to somebody who you've never spoken to before, who you wouldn't normally speak to, and say, you know, um, greet them at the entrance of the synagogue, or make sure they have a place to, to sit, or just even engage them in conversation, um, to try to make all of our places more inclusive. All right, lovely. Um, Catherine, do you have something or Susan? It, it looks like Adam is. A Adam, are you? I, I did come back. I'm so sorry. My my cordless phone ran out of batteries just at that <laughs> terrible moment. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> Comedy of errors on my side here. Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, are you back for for the rest, yeah, or just to say for? goodbye? I just have to say goodbye. I'm sorry. That's okay. So okay, so we were doing the part where um, we were like, thanks so much for speaking with us. So Adam, chime in with what you would respond. I just wanted to say thank you for um, what a great conversation, thoughtful and difficult in just the best possible ways. So Heidi, thanks for hosting us. And everybody, thanks for your wisdom and insight. All right, awesome. Thank um, you, so Adam. Th yeah, Adam, thanks for thanks. being here. Yeah, no, really, thank you guys. I, I really mean it. Um, I, I can't I wait. A lot listening to you. I can't wait for I can't wait for March. It's going to be great. Exactly. It'll be yeah. great to be with all of you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Bye, everybody. Good night. All right. Bye. Bye. Okay. So, um, Susan or Catherine, you want to um, go ahead and talk about Tikkun Olam in some way? Susan, you want to go first? Yeah. I mean, I have something I 
was thinking about since you emailed that, Heidi, but it just doesn't compare to everybody else. <laughs> um, okay, can I say my sad, pathetic thing and then go, see if Go ahead. I'm sure it will be better than you think. Okay. Um, I mean, I can say something really amazing and inspiring about the Tree of Life thing, too, but... Um, but let me um, let me just say what I was planning on saying. Um, okay, so I, uh, for many years, have had a commitment to being a mentor, and this to me is my way of tikkun olam: is to uh, help people who need a hand, who are trying to figure things out. Um, in my professional career as a librarian, people are trying to figure out how to be a writer. Um, in, in whatever capacity somebody needs a hand, um, I, I'm very committed to this. And, um, of, and sometimes it's very simple of just sitting down and talking and listening to what is going on um, with a person and questions they have and answering them. Sometimes it's, it takes a little more, a little more time. Um, but each interaction, and now I'm probably at dozens of people, um, has just been amazing, and I've been so proud of the people um, that I've watched uh, grow and have these amazing experiences. And I feel that I'm um, the tiniest bit helpful to them. And so, what I would encourage people to do is to just take time to listen to the people in your life, to reach out to someone who who may be struggling, who maybe they're having a tough time articulating that, but maybe you can see it and just um, checking in with them, seeing how they're doing. If they're in your field saying, hey, I see you're at the beginning of your career. Where are you trying to go in that? Um, what can I do? What would you like to know? How can I help you? And, um, and I think that that's just very important and um, be rewarding to you, but I think that it will also um, be incredibly helpful to them and I had people help me out and this is my way of um, paying it forward and it's been one of the most rewarding things in my life so I would recommend um, giving it a try. That was great. I don't know what you were worried about. <laughs> well I can't compare to what Adam and Rena said. Well, okay. His will be the last one because that was <laughs> pretty awesome. <so>. <laughs> <laughs> but yours was good so don't worry. Okay, uh, Catherine. I think that one of the things that's really stuck with me over the last couple of years is a sign I saw at the Women's March in January of 2017, which said courage over comfort. And I have kind of tried, I think it's a work in progress, to take that as my watchword. Um, and for me, that means that I am reading and watching media outside of my comfort zone to learn a, a great deal more than I did uh, three years ago, four years ago, 10 years ago. Uh, and so whether that means that you're reading a book like Tomorrow Will Be Different, or so you want to talk about race, or you're listening to um, a podcast, uh, like she's all fat, whatever is uncomfortable for you, go learn about it, read about it, um, listen to people who are living that experience and uh, 
is, I'm, it may or may not change your worldview, but you won't be a worse person for having learned more. Um, I think as a diehard Ravenclaw, my, my method is always to learn more. I feel like that's how I cope with everything, but uh, moving outside of my comfort zone with what I've been consuming in terms of media uh, has helped me be a better person in the world. And I think it would help a lot of people be a better person in the world. All right, another good answer. Great. Um, okay, so now that we did what was originally gonna be the final question, um, I'd like to move backwards if you guys have time. Uh, so can, are you guys all okay to stick around a little bit longer? Um, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I just want to, before we talk about intersectionality, if we could talk about for off the record for a minute. I don't know. Um, sure. As an Israeli, intersectionality makes me a little bit uncomfortable <laughs> um, because I think it's used in a lot of different ways to kind of talk about like Palestinian, um, the Palestinian situation. And I'm like, I just don't, I don't know. I don't I don't want it to get uncomfortable in an Israeli way for me. Um, I don't think for, for me, the way that we were using intersectional was um, like I am queer and Jewish. Right. And That's... how do those overlap? I am also <clears throat> super not interested in touching the is the great big right. elephant in every room. Yeah. I think I just want to make sure that that doesn't come out because then I will be very uncomfortable. Um, Th that is totally fine and understandable intersectionality in other ways i'm very happy to talk about it but you know um yeah <laughs> well the way you know it was mentioned in the description of the highlights workshop which is why i thought of it um and basically i was going to ask about um well first let's let's go ahead and talk about what it is so mm -hmm. we talk about intersectionality i see that as the overlap of your different social identities. So for instance, um, the, the, those of us who are speaking right now are Jewish and female, but you can also be, it could be about your race, it could be about your sexuality, you know, you can, your class, um, you could be both black and Jewish, and you could be um, oppressed by um, society for different parts of your identity. Um, but they're combined. So you're not separately oppressed for being black and for being Jewish. You're oppressed for being black and Jewish together, um, for example. So intersectionality, um, how does it affect Jewish kidlet? And also, how does Jewish intersectionality fit into the We Need Diverse Books movement? So I'd like you to share any thoughts on that. Um, Catherine, why don't you go first? Sure. I mean, I think that Jewish books fit into the We Need Diverse Books movement, uh, regardless of intersectionality. Um, I know that's a controversial opinion, uh, but that's how I feel. I think that um, a lot of American and European Jews have white passing privilege, and it's really important to recognize that, but there are also a lot of Jews who don't have white passing privilege um, throughout the world and in the United States and in Europe. And uh, for me, I am really interested in my own work of exploring queerness and Jewishness um, and how those interact with each other. As a non-binary author, I 
wrestle a lot with the lack of non-binary pronouns in Hebrew and how that affects um, non-binary and trans youth in our communities. I think a lot about that. Um, so for me, I'm really interested in uh, how identities that have really come to the forefront, especially over the last hundred years, um, out of the shadows and into the forefront, interact with traditions and faith. Good. Uh, Rena, do you want to add anything? Sure. <clears throat> sure, I'm happy to jump in. Um, uh, Catherine, I definitely like, agree with you. Um, in, in the current book I'm working on, I mentioned before, kind of started my starting, my jumping off point was the fact that my grandmother used to light candles in a closet. And you can't, I don't think you can talk about doing something in a closet without talking about the intersection of that with what, you know, with coming out of a closet. What does it mean to come out of a closet either as a Jew or in other ways? And so that's kind of an, inter, an intersection that I am currently wrestling with in my own work um, and in, in the book that I'm writing. Um, but, but beyond that, like uh, um, I'll echo similarly, you know, in Israel, over 50% of the Jewish population in Israel are Jews of color. <laughs> Um, the white European Ashkenazi Jews are in the minority, though they are the ruling power in general, um, which creates, you know, all sorts of its own kinds of issues. Um, so it's something that in Israel is always talked about and is always part of literature and is always part of children's books. Um, you know, are you Moroccan? Are you Turkish? Are you Syrian? Are you Ethiopian? Are you, you know, where do you come from? Are you an Egyptian Jew? And what are your culture and what is what is your heritage and how does that influence your Judaism and how is your Judaism different than my Judaism and how do we celebrate things and you know um, Israel has less of a, a, a kind of um, orthodox reform orthodox conservative um, spectrum it's more religious or non-religious and all the million shades in between um, and a lot of that has to do with the intersections of kind of where you grew up and what your heritage is and what how did you have to be Jewish in that place in order to survive? Um, and um, and one of the other things I've been also thinking a lot about in, in the current book I'm working on is, um, and this ties into sort of also a lot of um, queer um, authors who write um, um, Jewish fiction, is that you know Jews have sort of always been accused of, or as a slur, been talked about as shapeshifters. Um, but at the same time, um, uh, a lot of I've seen a lot of queer authors sort of embrace shapeshifting, right, as a way in which you can shift from gender, right, the same way you can pass being Jew, non-Jew, you can a shapeshifter can turn, you know, can shapeshift perhaps from gender, perhaps for into an animal, not into an animal. And I think as Jews, we've always sort of been shapeshifters because in every country we've moved in to, we've had to take on the culture. Um, of the place that we move to in order to survive, take on a new language, take on a new culture, take on new ways of cooking, take on new ways of being. Um, so for me in my work, there's a lot of those intersections happening and a lot of what I look for to represent to bring to the, to the Jewish world of literature, and specifically in children's books, is that children will see themselves reflected in these pages in all these different ways. Great, great. Susan, do you want to add anything? I think the bigger question for me is whether the publishing world sees Jewish books as diverse books. And um, and I think that's just a, a 
big question that I, we're trying to figure out. Um, I think that if if the book has intersectionality, so if it's you know um, a book about someone who is black and Chinese, then then it is diverse. But if it's about, I, I'm sorry, <laughs> let me try that again. If the book is about someone who is black and Jewish, then it is diverse. But if it is about someone who's Jewish, is that diverse? So that that's a question that I'm trying to figure out of of where Jews stand in the diversity spectrum in the publishing world. Um, I recently sold a book to um, Macmillan um, about a, an overweight Jewish kid around the time of his bar mitzvah. And I think that that's an, a sort of intersectionality we can point to. First of all, I think Jews is so much of our obsession is about food. And I think that growing up Jewish is always, it's, there's a lot of kids that struggle with their weight, not just Jews, obviously. Um, you know, but, but I think it's definitely, you know, the eat, eat <laughs> thing is something that is part of, very much a part of our culture and, um, definitely something that I struggled with as a child and continue to struggle with as an adult. And, um, I was very excited to see this book in my inbox because I was like, well, here's, here's something that everybody can identify with being overweight around the time of going into junior high. Right. But at the same time, this kid is also struggling with being Jewish and what does it mean to have your bar mitzvah and become a man and not to be happy with the, the image you see in the mirror. So I think that sometimes these intersections can help, um, you know, uh, um, but I definitely think that the publisher is looking at this book as a diverse book um, because we don't see enough, especially boys, overweight boys reflected in um, in children's literature, certainly not Jewish overweight boys. Was the end of that sentence that got cut off? Certainly not something. Certainly not Jewish overweight boys. <clears throat> Um, okay, so at this point, if is there anything that anybody would like to talk about that I haven't thought to ask you? Mm -hmm. No is allowed to be the answer. I just want to open it up <laughs> just in case. I mean, is there anything that we want to talk about the workshop as a workshop or? Or you're more sure. trying to do kind of the questions uh, stemming from the workshop. Well, these um, were the questions I have something that I were want in the say. description. Sure. Um, right. But, okay. So hold on a second before you go ahead with that. Um, I think you know in the introduction I will of course say that there is this workshop and give the website and everything. But if you'd like to talk about the workshop, that's great too. Um, so what was the other thing? Was that Katie who wanted to say something? I I, I also I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about this, Katie. Also. Um, Somebody, and you can choose to rephrase this if you want to rephrase it, or we can just use my phrasing. It's up to you, um, Heidi. But um, somebody uh, was kind of talking about my book and uh, felt that there wasn't enough um, um, kind of blood and guts and gore in the book because it, it's a book about the pogroms and that I didn't really properly show how horrible the time was then. Um, and so I guess my question is kind of like, I mean, what I, I was very upset by that because I was like, no, we're allowed to write story, Jewish stories that aren't about Jewish pain, right? We're allowed to tell Jewish stories that are about um, Jewish life, not Jewish death. And I think that that's part of like the Holocaust question, um, but also part of like bringing joy into Jewish stories. And I don't know how to phrase the question, but that's kind of something I'd like to touch upon if, and I feel like Katie would have something to say too about it. I always have something to say on this. Um, <laughs> I I felt that criticism also with my books. Um, 
I have a trade review that doesn't think the spy with the red balloon touched enough on the Holocaust. Um, like it was my obligation to write about the Holocaust as a Jewish author writing about World War II, um, when I very specifically limited what I touched on in that book, um, because I didn't want it to be a Holocaust book. Um, I think people have a really specific idea of what Jewish joy looks like and it's holiday joy. So I, I really want to see more Jewish books that show Jewish joy outside of holidays and also like throughout history. Um, I mean, Jewish people have been victims of horrible things throughout history around the world, but we've also been part of really amazing things um, about like historical achievements and um, discoveries and explorations and communities. And I wanna see more of that. And I don't, I, I really don't think that we should be policing each other or there should be policing us about how we also depict either joy or pain. Um, how you write times of terribleness and, and suffering it is your choice too and you're right like you were talking earlier like how you approach that is all your right um i, I yeah. want I, I feel like we're seeing some really great jewish children's literature that is breaking out of that mold um but my concern is that from a consumer side and i don't know if this I mean, I think this is a mixed bag. Some of this starts at a publisher and some of this starts at the consumer and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy where the stories that are bought are the Holocaust stories. So then the stories that are acquired are Holocaust stories and that kind of gets spun together. Um, that, that's why I'm really excited for your book and I hope it gets really widely read because it's a different way of looking at that history. I think that definitely right now we're in a, a time and a place where we want more stories of resistance and resilience, you know? Um, and so I guess like, if anything, I want to call, that's one of the things that I'm excited about participating in this workshop. Um, uh, it, and also, you know, talking in this podcast is about bringing, um, inspiring others and bringing more Jewish voices to the fore that can tell these stories that are stories of, of Jewish life, not Jewish death, that are stories of resistance and resilience that we, that signify that so much a part of who we are as a people. Um, and we don't get to see that enough in, in the pages of books. I think you said it right. We can end right there. That's the perfect ending note. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, right, I would, so anyway, I would actually yeah. like, I, if, has everybody read a Jewish book that they would recommend recently that we could also throw out there? I know that gets a little tricky for you, Susan. So if you need to go back a year or two to recommend, I yeah, think people I would understand. I can't recommend anything. Um, right. I'm, but, not, not publicly. <laughs> right. But if you want to go back a year or two because right. of, that would be great. I think that's always great. Mm -hmm. I need a minute. I want to think about it. I mean, I mentioned some of my author's books. I'd like to think about a book that's not one of my author's books, just to be fair. Okay. <laughs> um, when you say recommend, are you just saying something <coughs> you avoid a lot, or are you saying in terms of some particular criteria, or as an example of I some certain am, trend? Or... I guess a non-Holocaust, non-holiday Jewish book that you've 
read and enjoyed that you'd want to share? Would that be okay? Yeah, I just, I have to think too. <laughs> I'm talking um, about books. I'm like uh, with, with Heidi. Um, uh, let's see. I ha I mean, I already mentioned Spinning Silver, which I really enjoyed. Um, and I am reading a 2019 debut called The Fever King by Victoria Lee. Mm. And it's a futuristic fantasy book with a Jewish main character. And I am loving it. It's queer, it's Jewish, it's future, but uh, magic, not science fiction. Maybe like science fantasy. Uh, and it's all about rebellion and resistance and resilience and um, finding your way in the world. And it's beautifully written. It's so great. Um, I can talk about a book I'm really looking forward to reading that I haven't read yet, but I've read sure. all of his other work. Um, oh, but it's not a children's book. Wait, maybe I should. That's okay. I mentioned. Book. I mentioned Spinning yeah. Silver. Oh, Spinning Silver. Right. Okay. Sorry. So I'd like to recommend a book that I haven't read yet, but I've read many other books by this author, um, and I'm really looking forward to reading this book. It was actually listed um, together with my book as one of the 100 best books of 2018 by Publishers Weekly, um, and I'm so happy for him, and I think he's amazing. Um, Levi Tidhar, his, he has a, a new book that just came out called, called Unholy Land, and it's kind of about like Palestina, a Jewish state established in um, East Africa, um, and the capital is like Ararat, and it's just, it sounds incredible. Um, kind of, a, you know, Michael Shabon did that in like the Yiddish Policeman's Union. This is like his own complete take. Um, and I can't wait to read it because everything he's done has been fantastic up until now. I just bought it while you were talking. Thank you for that <laughs> recommendation. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm like just trying to get the Sydney Taylor 2019 list up. So, um, <laughs> um, uh, you said the book was called Fever King? Yes, it's a 2019 book. No, that's what I want. Okay, that's good. Um, and what's the <laughs> author's name? Victoria Lee. Okay, L-E. And, and do you know the publisher? I mean, I can look Sky, it It's Skyscape. But was that an adult right. book? And is it an it's adult a, book? No, it's a YA, YA book. It's YA? Yep. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, um, Rena, was your book, uh, an adult book? It's an adult book. Okay, sorry. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't make my spreadsheet. <laughs> Should I mention a? Well, I I can mention a YA book. Yeah, if you have what YA for 2019? Yeah. Yeah, you can. Yeah, go ahead. All right. Um, Rebecca Potos, who's also a literary <gasps> agent and an yes. author, has a book called The Wise and the Wicked coming out about like the women in her family who have magical abilities to stave off death and um also somewhat they leave their russian home for america you know so sort of some similar elements um and i've read it and it's fantastic and it's sort of full of folk tales and magical realism and it's just wonderful wonderful i am this so so excited for that book okay ya yeah. and you know yeah. YA. Rebecca i think it's Baldwin, right harper harper collins harper collins okay mm -hmm. All right, thank you. <laughs> Heidi's laughing at me, yeah. but no, she's been I'm not. No, been when, you, when you come across the title, you gotta write it down. That's part you of the write job. It down. You gotta write it down. It's the I'm not gonna even be the chair next year, but you gotta write it down. 
<laughs> Don't worry. I, I you should also write down people. the other books that are by my authors. <laughs> you can email me. Yeah, I'd be happy to share them with you. I'm just so excited to, you know, yeah. um, also writing the books, but also doing the work of, of helping to birth yeah. these Jewish stories into the world. And I just, I'm so lucky that I get to do both. I mean, so I'm looking for anything ages zero to 18 with Jewish content. And at this point, if I don't have a 2018 book, I'm in trouble. Or if I don't, I haven't heard of it. But if you have a 2018 book, you can send me that and I can just double, double check that we have okay. already published her five times. Okay. Um, yeah, but my email address should be in there. And uh, yeah, feel free. Yeah, I'll, I'll double check my list and make sure. <laughs> what we do, right, Heidi? <laughs> That's absolutely. That's great. Yeah. Um, so, okay, this has been very exciting. Um, for the, as you probably remember, I usually have a teaser that comes in an episode that precedes the episode, you know, like to, to get people to tune in next time. Um, and rather than have multiple teasers from all of the different people here in this conversation, um, I was thinking we could kind of have a group one, um, usually it's a dedication, you know, like the way you dedicate a song. But in this case, I was thinking it would make sense to just dedicate it to the Highlights Foundation for sponsoring the workshop that inspired this conversation. Um, and also to um, Linda Epstein, who is very involved in putting it together. Okay. So, uh, um, although Katie knows more about that, right? Because she was also very involved. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I haven't I got think... to talk to Linda that much, so I don't know who's, you know, who does what. Um, so I'm not sure how to organize it other than to, um, you know, just ask if, if maybe Katie, if you want to go ahead and say something along those lines that we can use as the teaser. Do you want me to just say something like, this episode is dedicated to the Highlights Foundation, Linda Epstein and Allison Green Myers, who helped organize it? Um, something along those lines, but maybe something. Um, because the people listening won't yet know what we're talking about in terms of the Highlights Foundation. Okay. Um, you could include something about, you know, the Highlights Foundation who is sponsoring this workshop called blah, blah, blah for whoever, you know, a little bit of a description so that people are intrigued. Okay. I'm pulling up the actual formal title of the workshop. <laughs> um, and you could start by identifying yourself. You know, this is, I don't know if you like to say Katie or Catherine, whatever, but this is Catherine Locke or whatever. Um, I'm on the staff of this workshop. You know, explain how you fit in. And, okay. And then you can and say that, um, you know, I'll be joining you soon on the Book of Life podcast as part of that description of who you are. Does that make sense? Yes, I will give it a go. Hi, I'm Catherine Locke, and I'm on the faculty of the Symposium for Jewish Children's Literature coming soon at Highlights Foundation. I'm joining you soon with my fellow faculty members on the Book of Life podcast. I'd like to dedicate this episode. Good. Dedicate this episode to. Uh, we dedicate this episode to the Highlights Foundation, Linda Epstein and Allison Green Myers. Thank you for organizing it. Um, all right, so I think we've got everything then, right? Everybody said thanks for being here. We already got that. And 
yeah, I think that's it. Unless anybody has anything else you want to add. No, but Heidi, can you stay on for a minute so I can talk to you about the 50 emails that have been going back and sure. forth? Okay. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I look forward to meeting you all, Heidi. Thank you so much for this. And thank sure, you everybody thank you. for, you know, being accommodating of the fact that I, I couldn't do this at two o'clock in the morning. So, <laughs> no, that's okay. That's fair. I'm glad all we right. got to do this while we're stateside. Yeah. 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 See you in the all spring, right. Rena. Okay. Take Bye. care. Okay. Thanks. Have a good night. Alrighty. Okay. Oh. Did everybody leave? I think so, or they're in the process of disconnecting themselves. So, um, oh. yeah. All right. Good. So oh. let me. Um, okay. Let me so are stop you the recording? Hold on. Yeah. I'm going to stop the recording, but I think that that won't actually hang us up. If it does, okay. I'll call you on the phone. So we can just go to the phone. Except for my cell phone is pretty much dead, so I would do on my house phone. Hold on, I'm stopping the recording, but you can still hear me, right? Yeah. Okay. So Great. go ahead. Still says recording now. You do you I'm want me to in the process of stopping? It's oh. it takes a with the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just gonna circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.